Good morning. Can you all hear me? Thank you for being here this morning, Sunday before Christmas. Uh, Let's open with prayer and then we'll jump in. Most merciful Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for calling us as your people. Thank you for attending to the details of our life and watching over even the hairs of our head and that we can trust you because you are good and gracious. You are just and you are kind toward your people. Help us now to hear from your word what you would have us to learn. Be with my words and be with all of our thoughts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, in April of 2005, Odie Arambula of the Laredo Morning Times wrote a piece about Texas state history and the Battle of San Jacinto in particular. In it, he interviewed a senior citizen of Laredo uh, who reminisced how he learned about the Alamo, San Jacinto, Santa Ana, and Sam Houston. And the old man was recounting how he had a social studies teacher uh, in junior high who used a booklet full of cartoons to depict the stories of Texas's fight for independence. And as he flipped through this booklet of cartoons, that class of junior high students would always laugh the hardest at the cartoons depicting the Battle of San Jacinto and the Mexican troops running out of their tents in their underpants, bewildered and confused, while the Texans were depicted storming the campsites shouting, remember the Alamo and remember Goliad. Now, those old booklets had some fun at the Mexican army's expense, and to the victors go the spoils, right? But they were used, the humor was used to great effect to drive home a lesson that Texas wanted her young men and women to remember. Texas independence was advanced because of an arrogant miscalculation by General Santa Ana. Now, most historians agree that personal pride was probably Santa Ana's worst enemy, The man who thought of himself as the Napoleon of the West fell asleep on the job, and the much better trained Mexican army was subsequently caught with their pants down. So I highlight that story because much like that old social studies teacher did in that class, the author of 2 Samuel uses sarcasm and mockery to great effect in our passage today. To highlight the folly of arrogant, violent men, and to drive home a lesson about Israel and her king, a lesson that was a source of comfort for her people. So here's the lesson, and here's the main point that I want you to focus on for our time this morning. The violent and proud are not who they think they are, and their judgment is certain. The violent and proud are not who they think they are, and their judgment is certain. So let's read 2 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 12. You have it on the handouts in front of you. 2 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 12. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banah, and the other was Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth was also counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gataim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite, Rechab, and Banah set out 
At about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord this day, or the king this day, on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. All right. So on the handouts, I included an outline from Ronald Youngblood's commentary. And Youngblood points out that chapter 4 is just a masterpiece of literary artistry, which I hope you'll see here. So how it's structured is beautifully symmetrical. There are three sections, each containing four verses. Each section is is divided into a three-verse unit, followed by a one-verse conclusion. And each conclusion features one or more parts of the body. The author makes it very easy to follow through what he's doing here. So here's the outline, if you want to reference it on the handouts. We have the characters in the drama, verses 1 through 4. So then verses 1 through 3 highlight Ishbosheth, Bana, and Rechab. And verse 4 talks about Mephibosheth, who is lame in both feet. Then verses 5 through 8 highlight the deed, which is the murder of Ishbosheth in verses 5 through 7. And his head is brought to David in verse 8. And then there are the consequences verses 9 through 12. Uh, The verdict of David in verses 9 through 11, and then the execution of Rechab and Benah, and their hands and feet are cut off in verse 12. So we're going to jump in and do our observation of the text by starting with verses 1 through 4 as we look at the characters. So I've got some questions for you. Please join in. Uh, Let's look at what we've been told about each character, starting with Ish-bosheth. Who is he? Saul's son, thank you. Was, from what we know from the last couple of chapters, was he a strong king, a strong ruler? No, he was not. Do you recall how he became king in Israel? Thank you. Abner installed him. He lifted him up. So Ishbosheth was dependent on the strong man Abner. And in chapter 3, when he confronted Abner about his father's concubine, what was the result? He was scared of him, right? Abner rebuked him. Ishbosheth quickly backed down. And then Abner went out and made a treaty with David on behalf of Israel. Abner, the strong general, not this puppet king. So Ishbosheth is just a puppet king. No strength or authority of his own. And it's no surprise then that his courage failed. We're told his courage failed. And literally in the Hebrew, it means that his hands became weak or limp. So with Saul and Jonathan and Saul's other sons, And the strong man Abner, now all dead in Israel, and a weak puppet king supposedly on the throne, he's the only one that remains, what kind of situation does that create in the northern kingdom of Israel? 
Pardon? Chaos. If there's a massive vacuum, right? Yeah. So all Israel now, all Israel is dismayed. They're alarmed. Which leads us to our two antagonists and opportunists, Bana and Rakab. Who are they? What are they described as being or doing? So they're captains of what? Raiding bands. Okay. In 1 Kings 11, this noun is used in the singular, and it's a leader of a band of rebels. But this is not uncommon because David used these same types of men, and we read about that in chapter 3. So not uncommon, but they might be a little sketchy, you know, kind of, not hitmen, but, you know, you, you kind of get this picture of what they're there for. And where are they from? Where are we told they're from? Biroth, okay. And they're from a specific tribe, right? They're from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe. Now, in verse 2, the commentators point out there's that parenthetical comment, which is helpful because it clarifies that these two guys are, in fact, Benjaminites. They're Israelites. They are not Berethites, who we're told that indigenous people group fled to Gitaim. So these guys are actually from Israel. They're not foreigners. They're not sojourners, like the Amalekite, who claimed to have killed Saul a couple chapters earlier. All right, so put that aside. And now let's look at Mephibosheth. Who is his father? Jonathan, thank you. And who's Jonathan? Saul's son. Okay. So the heir to the throne. How is he described in this passage? It's a physical description. Crippled and lame in both feet. And when did it happen? But how, how old was he? He was five years old. Okay. So in uh, chapter two, Excuse me. Chapter 2, verse 11, we're told that David reigned in Hebron for about seven years. So at the time of this story, at the time of the assassination, Mephibosheth would have been about 12 years old. But we have to ask, why include this story about Mephibosheth here in this passage, this description of an assassination? Does it seem out of place to you? I mean, to describe the main bad actors and the one that they're going to harm, only to cut to another member of Saul's line who doesn't seem to have any apparent bearing on this story. Does that seem out of place? A little disjointed. A little bit, right? So when we read verse 4, it's good for us to ask, why is this here? Why did the author put it here? Because as we'll see, the author is actually using this little detail to add some depth to the story. The author hasn't only structured this passage beautifully, but this is some really good writing. Because even though David tells us at the end of the chapter how bad Bana and Rakab are with his pronouncement of judgment, Ralph Davis points out in his commentary, the author is actually going to use a heavy dose of sarcasm and mockery to show us how wicked and pathetic these guys are. And the best writing, the best kind of writing, always shows rather than tells. It paints a picture for you to observe and arrive at your own conclusions rather than telling you exactly what to think. And that's what the author is doing here. So let's look at the deed. Let's look at the actions here. Rakab and Banat set out to do their work. When do they take action? Midday, middle of the day. And in the middle of the day, in a hot, arid environment, what time is that? What do people do around the world in that kind of environment? Yeah, it's siesta time, right? And that's what Ishbosheth does. So where do they do the deed? 
Where do they actually commit the murder? Yeah, in the midst of the house, in his bedroom or private quarters. And then how do they gain access to Ishbosheth's bedroom, his private quarters? Yeah, they're lying. They're deceptive in trying to get into the house. Thank you. And then how do they kill him? What's the weapon of choice, the method? They stabbed him in the stomach. Now think back to the first few chapters of 2 Samuel. Do the details of this assassination, it occurring in the midst of something, using subterfuge or deception, and then stabbing somebody in the stomach, does that sound familiar? It should. Yeah, exactly. Abner. So it sounds very similar to the way in which Joab murdered Abner in chapter 3. So Joab took Abner into the midst or the inner part of the gateway at Hebron, and Ishbosheth was murdered in the midst or inner part of his house. Joab had lured Abner back to Hebron under false pretenses, and here Rechab and Benah enter Ishbosheth's house under false pretenses of getting some food. And both Abner and Ishbosheth were stabbed in the stomach and died. And verse 7 here in particular, I want to point out, this is not a redundant passage or kind of disjointed. This is typical Hebrew narrative. So usually in the Hebrew, they'll give you a fact, and then they'll give you more detail that colors that fact right afterwards. And that's what happens here. So we see that the author is describing this weak, pitiful, defenseless king without his strong man to protect him as three times dead. Ishbosheth is struck, he's killed, and he's beheaded. However, Unlike Santa Anna's forces, who should have been on high alert in the middle of a war or battle with the Texians, the defenseless Ishbosheth should have been secure in his bedroom as he napped in the heat of the middle of the day. He hasn't provoked anybody. We've already been told he's incapable of retribution for Abner's death, and there's absolutely no indication in the text up to this point that David or Judah are, are gunning for him. So he should have been secure. So Rechab and Benah are revealed for the opportunistic, murderous thugs that they are. And it's here that the author's sarcastic artistry really shines through. And we can begin to see maybe what could have been obscured after only one or two readings if we consider some of the specific details he's given us. So when he go back to the description of Rechab and Benah. Did he provide a detailed instruction telling us just how bad these guys were? Not really. It was a pretty boring, straightforward description, right? Just occupation, father, hometown. But consider the other characters the author has chosen to include here. We've got a limp-wristed puppet king who they murdered while he was sleeping defenseless in his bed. And we've got a 12-year-old who's lame in both feet and completely dependent on others for his care. So let's go back to Mephibosheth for just a moment and consider his seemingly random inclusion in this story. Why do you think the author chose to introduce Mephibosheth here, Saul's grandson, here in this, this story? Any thoughts? Okay, certainly that's true. And we will hear about Mephibosheth later on. So there's an aspect that shines a light on Mephibosheth. Any other thoughts? Highlighting the weakness of Saul's family? Certainly, yes, that's part of it too. It is certainly at least those things, but it's more too. So if we go to the law and the testimony, let's consider what the law says. This passage describes Ishbosheth's murder. 
Is there a law in Israel that addresses justice in the case of murder? There is. If we go to Numbers 35, and I know it's not on the handout, Numbers 35 deals with murder in the land, uh, verses 9 through 21, 9 through 21. So verses 9 through 15 deal with the cities of refuge. So if there's an accidental manslaughter, knowing what human nature is, and the aggrieved family might be tempted to take matters into their own hand, the Lord has provided cities of refuge where the accidental manslaughterer can flee to, and he should be safe and protected. But then in verses 16 through 21, we deal with another category of manslayers, the murderer. Let me read that to you. Verses 16 through 21, Numbers 35. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Okay. Now, according to the scriptures, and specifically Leviticus 25, as it relates to the redemption of a family member who's a slave as well as the rabbinic tradition, the avenger of blood was supposed to be the closest blood relative of the one who was slain. So now do you see why Mephibosheth was included in this passage? He is the nephew, or sorry, yeah, he's the nephew of Ishbosheth and the only descendant left from Saul's line. Mephibosheth is the one who's supposed to avenge Ishbosheth's murder. Do you see how it paints Rechab and Benah in an even worse light? The author is mocking the brothers, but not explicitly telling you that he's mocking them. It's, if, it's as if he's saying, boy, you guys are some real tough muchachos. You are so tough, you can kill a defenseless, pitiful, weak man on his bed while he's sleeping. And that's not all. You've also got to deal with this guy's avenger of blood, a 12-year-old cripple who can't do anything. Man, you guys are loco. It takes some real big stones to do what you did. Do you see how the the sarcasm and mockery is kind of subtly coming out from the author? He's painting them in a very bad light. Nevertheless, these two guys make haste and foolishly bring the news and evidence of their work to Israel's king. But then they add to their sin. In verse 8 there, who do they invoke as a witness? They invoke the Lord's name, the God of Israel, using his covenantal name. So they blaspheme the name of Yahweh and attribute their cowardly murder to his divine purposes for David. And by saying Yahweh has avenged David on Saul through them, what do their words imply as it relates to David? Pardon? It could imply that, yes. And certainly, we'll get to that in a second. That may have been what much of Israel would have thought. But they're coming to David saying, okay, we've done this for you, and it wasn't just us. This was the Lord's purposes, so pay up, right? They've eliminated the final threat from Saul's house, and so David is now somewhat obligated or indebted to them to bestow honor or power or something on them. Well, these two violent, opportunistic men are not who they think they are. 
and their judgment is coming. So now let's look at the consequences in verses 9 through 12. 9 through 11 recount David's reply to the brothers. He mirrors Rechab and Benah's words in this passage, but corrects their blasphemous presumptions. He also invokes the Lord's covenantal name, and he agrees that it is Yahweh who has redeemed him out of every adversity. But was there an explicit adversity here in this text, like Saul chasing him and trying to kill him, or a giant looking to crush him? Was there any threat in this passage? No, not at all. There's that power vacuum in the north, and Saul's line is already as good as done, even with Ishbosheth still alive. And as Ralph Davis says, you have these pseudo redeemers, as they show up out of nowhere on some random Thursday morning, David is able to recognize them for what they are and repudiate their claim because he remembers his true and only redeemer. And we, the readers of Samuel, have been given example after example of the Lord's redemption of David. So David then compares their actions to those of the Amalekite who claimed responsibility for Saul's death. And Youngblood points out in his commentary, whereas Saul died in the context of danger and violence in battle, Ishbosheth was murdered in what should have been the secure and peaceful serenity of his own house on his own bed. So if David put to death the Amalekite for claiming to have struck down the Lord's anointed king in battle, in the midst of war, how much more will he put to death two wicked men who actually did the deed and brought the evidence of them striking down an innocent man as he peacefully slept? So Israel's king executes a righteous judgment. David gives the order, and his men kill Rechab and Benah and cut off their hands and feet. Another commentator said, having slain their master with their hands, they made their escape from justice with their feet. So both hands and feet are cut off and removed from them in judgment. And David has the men hung by the pool at Hebron. And there's some irony here in the text because the event that kicked off the competing kingdoms in uh, chapter 2, the prolonged struggle, struggle between Ishbosheth's men and David's men began by a pool, and now the bodies of Ishbosheth's murderers are hung by a pool, kind of bringing this full circle. Now, critical commentators did point out, of course, Davis, David, of course David had to make a spectacle of Rechab and Benah. He's looking to unite the kingdoms. He's trying to bring Israel back into the fold. He had to make a public show of his denouncement of this deed. If he hadn't, that northern tribe of Israel would have assumed that he was behind the murder, that he was guilty of it. And surely there would have been skeptics and cynics in Israel, because after all, this is what kings and politicians do, right? They hire someone else to do their dirty work, and then they knock off the hatchet men to make themselves look as clean as possible, right? That, we see that throughout history. And we've seen that in our own day. The cynic or the conspiracy theorist will believe what they want to believe regardless of what facts are placed before them. So that's not what the author is getting after. He knows there are going to be some people in Israel that are going to look at this with a very jaded view and come to some cynical conclusions regardless. But the author wants to make very clear at the end of the passage that this was a righteous judgment on David's part. David had no need for two murderous thugs to deliver the kingdom to him. And now all Israel can see, with these two men hanging up by the pool, should they choose to believe it, that there is a king who judges with righteous judgment, and he now reigns in the land. 
The violent and the proud are not who they think they are, and their judgment is certain. So as we pull back from this episode in 2 Samuel and consider how it points us to Jesus in the grand story of Yahweh's redemption, I hope you've heard a picture of the gospel. Jesus told his followers, the violent take the kingdom by force, and all who draw the sword shall die by the sword. And like Rechab and Benah in Jesus' own day, there were wicked, murderous, opportunistic hirelings who saw the son of the king coming, and they plotted amongst themselves and struck him down, attempting to seize power and to take the vineyard for themselves. But the end result was not exactly what they had imagined or anticipated. And just as the story of Ishbosheth begins and ends by a pool, that story of God's redemption, that bigger story, begins and ends by a tree. And at the end of that bigger story, God's perfect justice was put on full display so that all can now see, should they choose to believe it, that there is a king who judges with righteous judgment and issues perfect justice who reigns over all the earth. So this theme, which runs throughout the scriptures, that the king will execute his perfect justice on the proud and wicked, is meant to be such an encouragement to us, the saints of the Lord. After all, it doesn't take much effort to think of how violent, murderous men have attempted to take the kingdom by force throughout history, right? We've got uh, all kinds of examples of secular leaders who have used the church to advance their worldly ambitions, or church leaders like popes and bishops murdering and stealing and oppressing God's people for their own worldly gain. And even in our day in this country, maybe a little less bloody, but there are wolves in sheep's clothing who oppress and abuse the citizens of the kingdom for their own personal gain. They've convinced themselves they're agents of God's redemptive purposes, but they devour widows' houses. And on the day of judgment, they'll stand before the judge of heaven and earth, perhaps maybe smoothing their hair, fixing their cuffs, and with a smarmy smile saying, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out your enemies? Did we not do mighty works, many mighty works, in the name of Yahweh's salvation? And the avenger of blood will say to them, you have no part in me. I do not know you. Your blood be on your own head, you workers of lawlessness. And he will give the order to cast them out into the eternal fires of judgment. The violent and the proud are not who they think they are. Their judgment is certain. And that should bring those of us who know King Jesus a measure of peace and comfort, even in the midst of the struggles and the chaos. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is beautifully written and that you show your people. You give us words to meditate on, to reflect on, that we can come to conclusions of how great you are, how good you are, that you are just and your judgment is righteous and true, and that you are coming again to set all things right. Stir up a hope within us, set our hope on that coming, and may we look with anticipation to your reign which will be perfect and pure and peaceful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, do you have any questions? It's a short chapter, but a lot in there. Yes?
a pretty big jump, right? From what they said to what David concludes. It's a good point. And most of the commentators concluded that there had to have been a bit more back and forth or a little bit more that Rakab and Banah actually shared with him. So there, it could be stylistically that the author is trying to paint them as, look at, we've executed the Lord's righteous judgment. This is what we're bringing to you. But David pulls out what maybe they also shared some other details to show, again, how bad they were. But if we're taking this at face value, you're right. Something doesn't quite compute. How did David get to where he landed without that additional detail, right? Thank you for pointing that out. Anything else? Well, thank you for your time this morning. May you have a lovely week and celebrate well with family and friends. All right. <laughs>